0: One thing I've gotten probably since we've started Spirit Chapel, and since we you know, we're really a Bible-based church, I've had a lot of people come, and they've told me later they're surprised how many scriptures are in every sermon. That's deliberate because I always figure, well, if the sermon really kind of sucks, at least you had scripture, and it never does. So I always just kind of load it up with scripture thing, and that's always a good thing. Um, but I've had a lot of people kind of hear us talk about why it's important to read the Bible and Bible studies. But I must be reading the wrong Bible because I don't have any of the joy in my Bible studies. I hear other people. Maybe my translation's wrong. And back when we used to have a Christian bookstore up near Century 3 Mall, it's now since then closed, uh, I sometimes would take people up there. We'd go up there and I'd say, okay, let me help you pick out a translation. Because, you know, when you get at get into it, and you go to a Christian bookstore or something, and you see all the different translations and all the different versions of the translations, it's a little bit daunting. And people say, I don't know what to pick, which translation is best. Now, my glib answer to that is the best translation is the one you will read, but that's almost a useless answer, right? Because that's not really what they're asking. They're asking for advice. So although I don't normally like to do this, I thought for this part, I think I will go ahead and give my opinion on advice of, of these. Now, you you're still going to be allowed to come to Spirit Chapel no matter which translation you pick. I'm not kicking anybody out, but this is my opinion. First of all, I believe you should have a physical Bible, not a virtual Bible. Virtual Bibles are great, and they have their place, but I don't believe their place is, the, is your Bible study. Now, I'm a tech guy. Everybody knows that. I've got an iPad. I've got a Android stuff, I an Android phone. I have, a, I have an Linux computer, a Mac computer, and a PC computer. I'm a geek, I'm, I'm a, but not when it comes to the Bible. When it comes to the Bible, I'm a little bit old school, And part of the reason why, and I know this is weird, I love the way a Bible smells. I just do. I like the tactile feel of the Bible. I like the smell of the Bible. But more than that, my Bible that I use for my Bible study, I've been using long enough that I have notes and things there just to me. And it's just easier to do that in a Bible. And there's sometimes I'm looking for a verse, and I can't remember exactly the verse, but in my head I can see what position it is on the page of my Bible. And I'll be flipping through. I know it's a New Testament. I'll kind of be looking there. Oh, there it is, because it will have been underlined, you know, if it's something that meant to me. So I like physical, not virtual. Uh, now, my perfect world, in which I never get to do anymore since we started church, but my perfect world for Bible study looks like this. I have my leather-bound, you know, large print Bible because of my eyes. I have a notebook handy. I uh, this little tiny journal I ha- like to write in. Um, I usually have a dog sleeping, being good in my perfect world. A cup of coffee, love that cup of coffee, and I'll have an iPad there. Now, the iPad's there for I have to look something up. My phone is not there. If it is there, it's on do not disturb, and it's put away where I can't see it. And the reason I use the iPad is in technology is because I have nothing on it where you can reach me through. I have no messaging of any kind on my iPad. It's disconnected. But I can still reach the Internet because sometimes it's faster to look things up on the Internet than it is to look it up in the Bible. So uh, that's my perfect world. Now, as far as translations go, I almost don't care which one you pick. I'm strongly advising you guys have heard me say this before. Please, please, please skip the King James Version just skip over. If you have a King James Version of the home that you really love, take it, dust it off, put it in a very special place on your shelf and put a little plaque below. It says, here is a precious religious historical artifact and leave it like that. Take it down and show it to people. But I wouldn't suggest it for your daily readings. And why is because of this. Um, it's written in old King James, which was written in like 16th century, 14th century. And uh, English has changed since then. You can't read this very well anymore. Some of you Shakespearean scholars are giving it a shot, I can tell you. This is pretty much what it says. It says, don't be silly. You don't understand King James. Don't pretend you love it. If you say, I love the King James, what you really are saying is, I love the memories that I have with the King James Bible. And that's great. And listen, the King James Bible's poetry. It really is. It reads like Shakespeare. If you're going to quote it to somebody, man, you going to hold up your hand and point a finger, King James is the way to go, right? Because it sounds authoritative. But as far as trying to read it, It's really, really hard. And unless you've studied old English, you're not going to be able to read it correctly because the English language has changed. You know, I've talked about this before. The word artful uh, and and awful are the same words there. Awful means full of awe, and, you know, that's not really how we read it. So Spirit Chapel's kind of endorsed versions. We start off with the New King James Version. Now, let me tell you why. the King James Version hangs out there and why people still, first of all, a lot of Baptist preachers believe it's the only way to go. I mean, if it was good enough for Peter and Paul, it's good enough for you. But um, the the other thing is, there's th- the thing about the King James Bible is it's attempted to be a word-for-word translation, which is why it sometimes reads a little awkwardly because we phrase things differently in English than they do in Greek or Hebrew. Uh, that actually is very important though if you try and do a like word bible study to try to stay word for word and that's why the King James Version kind of still hangs in there. But there's a new version of it. It's called the New King James Version. Tries to do the same thing but with modern English. It's not like like hip modern English, but it tries to make it with words you fully understand. So when we started, I started with the New King James Version. If you look at the Bibles that are here in the in the seats, it's the New American Standard Bible. It tries to shoot the gap between what we would call a paraphrase and word for word. Now, a paraphrase is when you take something and you just simply explain the meaning of it and not word for word. Like if my wife calls me and gives me a list of things to buy at the grocery store, and you say, what did she want? I'd say, oh, she just told me to buy some things. That's a paraphrase. That's not really what she told me. She told me in detail what to buy, how many to buy, where to find them, and what color to buy. You know, it was very detailed, but I just kind of summed that up by saying, "Wow, well, she told me to buy some things. That's a paraphrase. There are other paraphrases that are available. They just read better but they're getting further away (coughs) from the word-for-word text, so you kind of have to make a little bit of a trade-off there. Here's what I recommend, since we no longer have a Christian bookstore anywhere near us. I don't even know where the nearest Christian bookstore is. uh, Go to BibleGateway.com. It is a free website. It has virtually every uh, possible Bible version that I've ever heard of there. Uh, (coughs) And when you go there, Take it for a test drive. You can switch out different versions. I would read a couple things, and these are just some recommendations. You can read whatever you want, of course. Romans 8, because it's a difficult read. Romans 8 is a little bit packed. It's dense. It's Paul's theology. It's not easy reading. If you can read it and understand that, that's a pretty good translation for you. I'd also go read something like Psalm 23. I always read Psalm 91, something that has a poetic feel to it to see if you still like it, because some of these new modern translations, they lose all sense of art and doesn't, you know, I don't like it, so you don't t- I do that. And Second Peter, that's another good one, that's Peter's little thing, he talks about the dangers of the church. And I would test drive at least these versions, because these are versions I've seen people select after they do this, and so, and you could even print those out, if you're real old school, you wanna look at the page and you can side by side. ESV is the English Standard Version. Uh, NIV is a New International Version. That was the very first paraphrase that really became popular. Uh, NIV kind of ruled the churches for like the 80s through the 90s because it was new. And then it got bought by random house and a lot of Christians walked away from it at that point. NLT is a New Living Translation. have a lot of younger people like this because this is really paraphrased into very modern English. Uh, It reads a little better. Uh, NIRV is something I just found on Bible Gateway. It stands for the New International Reader's Version. I find that's a very readable version of the Bible. And then my wife's favorite is this Holman's Christian something, standard Bible, thanks. Holman's, um, she has this Holman's Bible that she absolutely loves. She's actually had to get it rebound because she wore the first binding out and she's never given this Bible up. So uh, anyway, but just take them for a test drive. See which one you like and the one that you read and kind of seems to make sense to you, that's the one you should get, right? Because don't worry about the other things. There's a lot of, I could go down as why this translation's better than this, but it really doesn't matter. What I want you to do is feel comfortable reading the Bible, I don't know any other way of saying this, but the more you read it, the more you kind of get an understanding of what God's voice sounds like. And usually when he speaks to you, he speaks to you through the Bible. And if you're not reading the Bible, it's like having a cell phone that's not turned on. So I highly recommend that. One other thing, and I've talked about this before, get one with read-along references. This completely revitalized my Bible study. I can never do a successful Bible study until I got a Bible of that. If you wonder what those are, they kind of look different depending on the Bible you're in. You sometimes see these little verses, sometimes they'll have little notations and you have to kind of look them up. Uh, but these, what these verses are saying is they're saying the phrase it's used in here is also used there. And it's another view of that phrase. And it's very, very helpful to bounce from here to there to there and go hop-skipping because sometimes God's pulling you to some phrase in the Bible or some word in the Bible. And, you know, I think he's going to speak to me something about, you know, redemption, but I don't know what that means exactly. And so you kind of go through these things. And what I always would do is I kind of go through them until one of them just hit me in the face, you know, usually in Isaiah or Psalms or something. And then that was what I called my ender. Like this was what God was wanting me to find. I circle those in my Bible. I underline the ones important. I circle those enders. And it's really cool later if you're looking through to see some of the verse and you'll see a circled verse. You know, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember God smacked me with that one. So it's really kind of cool, and that was, uh, that's what did. Now, some online resources that are worth knowing about. I've already mentioned BibleGateway.com. I want to talk just a second about BlueLetterBible.org. Bible.org is also good, by the way, but blueletterbible.org, that is if you want to get deep into studies. And here's why you don't need to necessarily buy word for word because you have this available to you. You can go online and you can put in a verse on blueletterbible.org and you get this page here, which I know you can't see, but then you click on the tools and then you can click on the word itself and it pulls up the translation of the word and it breaks it down. It gives you you exactly how many times it was used in the Bible, what the original Greek said. If you're trying to do any kind of word study on your own, wonderful resource for that. Uh, I apologize. You can't read that at all. I don't think, but um, that's it. The last thing, you'll you'll notice that I put up here spiritchapel.us. That's not me just being cute. I want to show you something you might not know. Some of you guys may know this, but um, if you want to Google for something in any website, this works anywhere, any website, here's how you do it. If you went to spiritchapel.us, which is our website, and you put, like, in quotes, Psalm 23, you want to put it in quotes because you want the whole thing. And then you put site colon spiritchapel.us, it'll show you Google will show you every place on Spirit Chapel where Psalm 23 appears now why that's important is since about the third year Victoria's gone back to my sermons and put every slide you see the scripture on it in the sermon so if you search this way on Spirit Chapel for the last three years you will find any sermon where that verse was used in the sermon so if you're trying to remember something that was said here but you kind of know the scripture you can find it that way this works with any website not just ours so it's a little tip for you Uh, Okay, so that's, this is like I said, this is like a practical sermon. That's the first one. The second thing is the number one thing I get from people when they're trying to say, well, I might need a new translation. Number two is this. I've tried to read the Bible, but I have to tell you, it's pretty boring. fact, it puts me to sleep. I've gotten that one more than once. I try to read the Bible, and I go to sleep. Reading the Bible's hard. I I don't understand you guys who love it. it. It's never been that way for me. I've never loved it. It's always seemed hard to me. Well, let me tell you something. It seems hard to everybody. It does. Reading the Bible is hard, especially when you get started. It's not easy. Uh, but you know what? That's like anything else you've ever done in your life. You know, there's a saying that uh, talent is a gift wrapped in hard work. Well, the Bible is a gift wrapped in hard work. It really is. You're not going to pick up the Bible the first time reading and go, oh, cool. Oh, what a refreshing thing that was. No, you're going to pick it up and go, I read it. It doesn't really mean much to me. I don't know what people are talking about. Or you might be like this guy, and you're starting to read, and you fall asleep. It happens. You have to stick with it like anything else in your life that you've ever learned that you're good at. I don't, pick something you're good at. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's, you know, swinging tools, if it's playing guitar, if it's dancing, if it's some athletic thing, knitting, uh, shooting a weapon. The first time you did it, you weren't good at it. But some at some point, you told yourself, this is important to me. I'm going to do the work I have to do in order to make this good because I really want to be good at it. And as you do that, you get better. You make the decision. You say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get better. I'm going to do the work. And you do. That's what the Bible is. It's not going to naturally just come to you. Now, that's just true of anything. It's even worse with the Bible. Because the Bible, we get in this whole spiritual world thing. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, look, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. It's not just you trying to stay awake. It's against the rulers, the powers, and the world forces of darkness. It's against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Listen, the last thing Satan wants is you reading the Bible. It's like when you open a Bible, alarms go off in hell. Someone's got to get over there. Stop them now. And that dog who was sleeping suddenly wakes up, you know, and, and that phone that you have on vibrates somehow isn't on vibrate and people are calling you. Weird things will happen to you to disrupt your Bible reading. I promise you they will. The devil doesn't want you reading the Bible. He wants you to be unarmed when he fights you. Devil never plays fair. He continues and says this. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. I'm sure you guys have seen this sermon, this uh, scripture before. You so that you'll be able to resist evil. And having done everything to stand firm. This is the nice thing. You don't have to do anything. A lot of Christians think you have to go running into the fight. You don't. The fight will come to you. All you need to do is stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Of God, now Paul is actually describing. If you've ever seen this, um, a centurion's armor is what he's really describing. I saw a really cool sermon once where this guy—I don't know how he got it—he got museum, museum museum-quality Roman armor, and he did a series on each one of those things and put it on and he talked about it. It was really, really cool. I can't imagine what that cost. But here's the thing about the sword. Those of you who know this, I'm a geek. I used to fence quite a bit uh, competitively. The thing about the sword is it's first and foremost a defensive weapon. People don't know that. People don't understand that. But when you are fencing or sword fighting, which is you know, a fancy word for sword fighting, when you're sword fighting, the first thing you need to do is stop the attack. If you're not stopping the attack, you're not a very successful sword fighter. And so they teach you the very first thing is uh, you you may have heard the expression on guard. That means you're on your guard. When you stand there and they say on guard, you're actually on guard and you're actually parrying which is defending a specific place on your heart. That's when you go on guard, you're actually usually classically pr- protecting this side of your heart in what we call the sixth position. Here's what's really interesting. When someone attacks you, of course, they won't attack you here because you're guarding that. They'll tar- attack you over here, which we call the fourth position. And the move you make in fencing to switch from guarding your sixth position to your fourth position is this. That's all it takes because the rest of it's done by the, by the shape of the sword. The way the sword and the guard is that little motion right there, that attack fails. It's amazing how powerful the sword is as a defensive weapon. And I think Paul knew that when he says that's your, the that's your Bible. The Bible's there as a defensive weapon. A lot of times, if you're using your Bible, the attack just doesn't come. And you don't realize it's helping you because you didn't know the attack didn't come. It just didn't, right? It's when you stop and you put it down that you, that you sometimes get hit with all kinds of things. Okay. So that's, uh, that's the end of the Bible practical. Now we're going to get to the preaching part. Um, So let me ask a question that maybe you asked, why don't people want the Bible to be true? Because that's what it is. People don't want the Bible to be true. You you hear people say, well, I don't believe in the Bible. That's because you don't want to believe it. You started skeptically. You didn't start believing the Bible and switch. You start saying, I don't want the Bible to be true. Now people won't admit that. They'll never admit that, but that's the truth. When I talked last week about how I kind of moved away from the full Bible to a bridge version, because I didn't like the full Bible, I didn't like what it said. I didn't want the full Bible to be true. I wanted my abridged version to be true. Why is that? Why are your friends don't like the Bible? Why is that, people you work with? Well, there's one word for it, authority. People don't want authority in their lives. We certainly don't want the authority of God, God telling me what to do, and the Bible is just simply an extension of that. I don't want some book telling me what to do. I just absolutely do not want some book telling me what I can and can't do, especially some book that was written thousands of years ago, and now it's going to sit there and it's going to tell me what I can and can't do? Uh-uh, not on my watch. I don't want that. I don't want that at all. And so what happens is they're rejecting the authority because they don't want it. If it, doesn't, if it isn't real, I don't have to listen to it. The problem is the Bible is a lot more than just telling what to do and what not to do. It's really how God speaks to you. But people reject it because of this. I don't want to listen to it. I don't, and the, bu- and the thing we have to understand about this is when people say, I don't want somebody to tell me what to do, and you've heard this, you may have said this, look, I'm a grown person, I don't need somebody to tell me what to do all the time anymore. Parents, you've probably heard your kids say that, I don't need you to tell me what to do, I know, you know, you leave the house, I don't need, my parents aren't around anymore, I can do what I want, I don't need this, I can make my own decisions, I'm going to do what's right, I'm going to do what's right according to what I see, that's what I'm going to do. The Bible talks about this back in the Old Testament. This phrase comes up right before they talk about some disaster that hit Israel. They'll use this phrase. This shows up all kinds of times in the Bible. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what we're saying. Let me figure out what to do. I'm just going to do things which are right in my own eyes. Like I said, this always preceded some huge disaster that hit Israel because there's a secret that people don't want to admit that's true. And this isn't a secret about the Bible. This isn't religion. This is truth that reality tells you. The secret is someone's always in charge. You might not want that to be true, but it is. Somebody's always in charge. I was talking last night, I've I've lived a life that I'm not necessarily always proud of, but for a while I was involved, I was played in a pool league in Oklahoma, and um, we went around some of the biggest dive bar, littlest dive bars you can imagine. I mean, these places, well, the ones that have the, the windows are painted black, you know, it's like these places you would never go into. Um, I went into them with my pool team to play other teams, and um, so I went to this, the w- first time we did this, I thought, I, c- I parked in a parking lot and waited for other people to come before I walked in. I thought, this cannot be where we're playing this batch. And there the Harleys lined up there, and like, oh, this looks bad. This looks real bad. And we went in, and, you know, it was smoke everywhere. They only have like three or four tables, these places. They're all bar tables, which are smaller. And everybody, everybody's playing now because they know the league's going to be starting soon. They won't be able to get on the tables. Uh, but if you went to practice, you had to get on a table. Well, they are all busy. And this one guy, he was probably the best player on our team, but he was a little guy. You know, he's a really smooth pool player, but a really little guy. He goes over these two guys, <laughs> these, like, you know, ZZ Top-like beards and these greasy guys playing playing pool. He takes two quarters, he puts them on the cou- on, on the pool table, and he steps back. Now, that is, that symbolizes, those of you who have ever been in these things, that says, I get the next game. And he's got, like, like two hell's angels sitting there playing a game. <laughs> he puts this stuff down and says, I get next game. And you get winner. He doesn't, you know, the winner stays on, loser leaves. And those two guys looked at those things, looked at him, and just kept playing. And you know what? When the game was over, the old guy lost <laughs> and left. And he took over, and he beat that guy, and then I had my quarters on there, and that's how we got on the tables to practice, right? They respected it. Now, they may go out from there and torture kittens and kill people, but they respect, it respected the rules of the pool table because that's where it is. Somebody's always in charge. There's always rules, and you might not want them, but there's always there. So somebody who's telling you, I don't want somebody telling me how to live my life, what they're really telling you is, I want to live my life. And if you're going to have a relationship with that person, what they're also telling you is, I'll tell you how to live your life. Because sooner or later, somebody has to decide, right? And I've I've counseled a lot of people. We've we do premarital counseling and postmarital counseling. Um, we've a lot of people who start off with this, well, my wife and I are 50/50 on this. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. One of you is doing what the other one wants. It just is. Well, they have this area of the world she takes care of and this area of the world I take care of. Right, until those two areas intersect intersect, and they will and then one of you is going to win. That's how it works. Somebody's always in charge. And if your relationship with somebody is, well, I'm not going to have anybody tell me what to do. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, anybody's going to tell me what to do. What they're telling you is they're going to tell you what to do. The reason that Christian marriage is designed the way it is is because both are supposed to submit to the authority of God's word. And then you can be fair because we both admit what God says we'll do. Otherwise, whoever fights better wins. That's kind of how it works. We've talked to a lot of marriages. That's how it works. So uh, in Romans, Paul's talking about this. He says, look, you're going to live under control of somebody, one way or the other. Uh, Live under the control of the Holy Spirit. If you do, you're going to think of what the Spirit wants. The thoughts of the person ruled by sin bring death, but the mind ruled by the Spirit brings life and peace. Or you can go ahead and you can live according to sin. The mind ruled by the power of sin is at war with God, though. It doesn't obey God's law. It can't. Those who are under the power of sin can't please God. By the way, that's the New International Reader's Version. I just tucked that in there that time, so you can see it. That's what happens. You can go and choose. You're gonna serve somebody. You're gonna you're gonna obey something. You're gonna obey your sinful drive, or you're gonna obey God's word. You can't not obey something. You always serve somebody. So that's what's happening. Uh, and, and what's going on right now is we see a world that has risen up this way where they're kind of like they've, they've, sa- they've basically said, I don't want to listen to anybody else's rules. We're going to throw everything out and do what's right in our own eyes. And in case you're wondering what's going on with the country and why we can't have nice things anymore, this is why. Because we're being l- led by a bunch of people who no longer care about God's word or any kind of authority, and they're going to do what's right in their own eyes. And what they don't understand is when you take that path, you will follow sin. You can't be uh, able to, to, to not follow sin. It's going to happen. Now, Romans, is, uh, this is a passage I've actually read before, but I always skip over most of this because it gets a little icky, uh, and I'm going to let it get icky today. We're going to go down into it. I'm going to tell you exactly what Paul says about this because he details what happens when you follow this desire to just do whatever you want where you eventually end up. And it pretty much perfectly describes America today. And it also perfectly describes any relationship that you start out with somebody else who's not following God's word, but just their own desires. This is where it heads. Always. And I've counseled enough people to tell you always. Okay. For the wrath of God is revealed against men who suppress the truth and their desire to keep sinning, because the truth about God is evident within them. For God made it clear, ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen. What Paul is saying is, you know what? If you're honest and you look at the creation of the world, you know there's a God. We talked about this in our Thursday class. Einstein, greatest mind of our generation, uh, he he looked through a Hubble telescope one day and went, yep, got to be a God. Because I'm looking at the creation and it had to be created. He doesn't serve him. He doesn't become a Christian. He was a Jew. He wasn't a, he wasn't a practicing Jew. But he says, there's a God out there. There's no question there's a God out there. But he went and lived his life as though it wasn't. And a lot of, a lot of atheists look at him and say, yep, there's probably God, but I don't want to believe that. So they just, just want to be able to keep on doing what they want. So that's what he's saying. He said, but if you're honest, truth will take you to God. So it's understood from what has been made so that people without excuse, for even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or even give thanks But they became futile in their own speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Here's the part of Christianity and God that we don't ever talk about. I don't know if you knew this, but sometimes God gives up on people. We don't like to talk about that. We like to think, uh, I got in trouble over this last night, but I'm going to stick with my illustration. We like to think God's the crazy cat lady. You know what I mean? That person who has like 37 cats in their house. They just love cats. And you go there, and it smells like a cat house, <laughs> like a latrine for a cat. And you walk around, and it stinks. And you see these cats, like, going on the shag carpet and just peeing. And, it, and she just loves them. Oh, it doesn't matter what the cats do. She just loves cats. They can do anything they want to her house. Her house is there, and she's there to serve them. You know, she puts out the food. She cleans the litter. This is what she does. And she just loves them no matter what. That's how people think God is about us. He's just a crazy human person. And no matter what the humans do, no matter how where we defecate and how much of a mess we make, God just loves us, and he's always just going to be there waiting for us to come you know, and give him a little bit of affection, just like those cats in the cat lady. That's not the truth. That's uh, not what the Bible says. I like this, the way C.S. Lewis put it. He says there's two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right, then, have it your way. Because there comes a time in your life when you rebel against God enough. He goes, okay, fine. Have it your way. That's a very bad place to be, by the way. Because if you think things are li- bad with God, wait until you see what life looks like without him. When he takes his hand off, just says, go ahead. I've been protecting you from all your mistakes. I'm done. You go ahead. I've been catching you when you fell. I'm not going to catch you anymore. Go ahead and fall. When God gets there, it's because he knows that love's not working. You've got to come to the decision yourself. You're going to have to hit rock bottom. And hit rock bottom, you will. He goes on, Paul, in Romans and says this, "Professing and be wise they became fools instead. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image that comes from earth. Therefore, God gave them over in their lusts of their heart to impurity so their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. If you don't think people are serving creatures rather than creators, you're not paying attention. You know, that movie star who has those adoring fans, they're being worshiped. They really are. You know, they call America an idol for a reason. And, and we, we sometimes turn to the government. You know, If we get the right people elected, our life will be better because we want the right people in power, which is fine. But if we think that's going to change our spiritual life or anything in our life, really, you, you, you're not really watching what's going on. And, and any time we're turning to the government or we're turning to some businessman or we're turning to somebody to help us out instead of turning to God first, we're putting that person ahead of God. That's all it takes to be worshiping the creature rather than creator. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, men abandoned the natural desire for women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons condemnation. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to their depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without any understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do it, they give hearty approval to those who practice it. And you want to see this in action? Just watch a spring break video and watch these people, with these kids doing stupid things that years from now they'll regret and everybody's sitting there cheering them on. Whoa! woo I've seen people drunk so bad they were thrown up and other people cheering. Really? You want to cheer for that? Because there's this thing, we want everybody to be where we are depraved and, and, and we're going we're to just go ahead and do that. We're going to go ahead and follow that. And we're going to say, yay, that's great. And he's saying, this is what happens when God pulls his hand off. You just start down this path. And and I don't know if you've ever known anybody or or been involved in anything. This happens with addictions, but it happens at any kind of level of depravity. It starts here. And when you're doing it, you're thinking, well, I'll never do this. Yes, you will. Just give it enough time. You'll do something that you say, but I can't believe I did that. Yep, because that's how it happens. When you start down that path, you say, well, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. Yeah, you will. Just give it time. You're just not depraved enough to get there. If God's hand is off of you and you don't turn around, you'll go right down to do the things that you said you would never do. And if you don't believe me, just ask anybody who's ever fought an addiction because they have done it. They've all gone there. Anyway, I read that and go, man, those people, they're weird. You get them, Paul. You go, you write about that. I love you talking to these depraved people because I don't think I'm there. I'm good. And then he turns around in Romans chapter 2, he says this. Therefore, you have no excuse. What? (laughs) Come on, Paul. I thought we were talking about them. He said, no, I'm talking about you. Because they have been given over their depraved mind. They don't know what they're doing. They're just following their lusts to where their lusts lead. You're not. So you know better than that, but you're dabbling. You are. You're dabbling in the same stuff they're in. You know better. It's just you haven't gone down the path yet. So that's the problem. We all have this list in our mind of what's good and what's bad, right? There's some things in that list that you would never do. Those are bad. And there's some things in your life that you do, they're good, right? Love of family, that's good. Love of country, that's good. Yeah, except Hitler loved his country. Manson loved his family. See, no matter where you are on the list, whatever you have, I smoke cigarettes, that's bad. That's not as bad as a guy smoking crack guy smoking crack, well, that's bad, but that's not the prostitute who's turning tricks to support her habit of crack, right? Everywhere you go, you just keep walking down the list. There's always people worse than you, and there's people better than you, and you're here. What you have to understand is God puts his foot on top of everybody's list and says, you're all below me. Everything but me is depraved, and if you start following your depravity, you just keep going down the list. You end up being that prostitute turning tricks. You're not so far from there. You think you are? Just follow your lust for a while. You'll be surprised what you're capable of. It's amazing what you're capable of. Jesus put it this way. He said, look, you've heard it said of those of old that you shouldn't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. If your heart's turned, it's just a moment your body turns. Your body follows your heart, not the other way around. The things you set your heart to, you're gonna end up doing. So I'm gonna, a little time, we're gonna go ahead and go here today. Uh, We didn't last night. So this, this begs the question. I get asked this question sometimes. I don't get it. Why does God create sex then? Why does he create sex and make it irresistible and then tell us we can't have it? I, I actually saw some stu- stuff online about that. That's the dumbest. That's why God must not exist. He'd be a cruel God to do that. But God didn't. This would be awful if that's what God did. It's not what God did. It's not at all what God did. We have to understand that the whole picture the Bible paints of God is a wise God you know, the, the, um, the sociologists will tell you the best form of government is what? Anybody know? Best form of government. Anybody know? Anybody take so's class? social class? Benevolent monarchy. Benevolent, usually they say dictator, but yeah. Benevolent monarchy is really the right one because they don't like to admit that because the difference between a dictator and a monarch is a dictator sees his role and a monarch gets it by right. And most men won't admit other men have the right. But that's right. A benevolent monarch who loves you and is wise is the best form of government. It's by far the best. And that's what we have, that's the Bible's picture. The Bible's picture is this benevolent monarch, a king who loves you. And he's designed this whole thing based on the fact he loves you. He's a guy who created sex. In fact, watch this. Um, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So he created male and female for a reason, right? And then we see this. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, let me, let me put this somewhat delicately, but I want you to think about this for a minute. God created a perfect man and a perfect woman. Now, I don't know what that looks like in your mind, okay? But just think about that for a minute. Adam's perfect. He's fit. He's got abs. He's got no belly fat at all, right? He is the whole package. His strong chin, clear eyes. He's perfect. He's whatever your ideal is, perfect. Eve, perfect woman, Those lips, that hair, those eyes, right? And a body that gravity's never touched. So they're perfect, and he makes them naked, and he puts them in a place called Eden. Does anybody know what Eden stands for? It actually, in Hebrew, stands for pleasure. So catch this now. God creates a perfect man and a perfect woman, naked, and puts them in a garden called pleasure. And then he tells them, in case you're wondering what he thought was going to happen, he says, go ahead. Be fruitful and multiply. Well, there's only one way that can happen, folks. He said, fill the earth. And then he saw all that and he says, that is very good. What I did there, that's very good. How can you say possibly that God has anything against sex? He has nothing against it. It's just this. He doesn't want them to be ashamed. See, he made them with no shame. He made all this in such a way that they could have at it and not be shamed. It wasn't until sin entered the world that shame happened. It wasn't until perversity entered the world that shame started. God wanted you to have it. In fact, did you know in the middle of your Bible, (laughs) there was a book of erotic poetry? True story. That's what this is. Song of Solomon, when you understand what all symbolism is, it's a how-to manual in the middle of the Bible. But it's between a man and his wife, his beloved. And they've, they've committed each other's hearts to each other. God doesn't want this not to be part of what you enjoy. He created it for that. He wants us to enjoy everything, but he wants us to enjoy it without shame. That's the difference. What the devil wants to do is he wants to use this and drive it into a perverse area that we're driven now by shame. And eventually we feel we're so shamed we can't even come back to God, which is what will happen with Adam and Eve. When, when he, God shows up in the Bible for the first time in the world, his own creation hid from him. They were ashamed because of the sin, not because of their nakedness, because of the sin. We have to understand that God created this for a purpose, and that purpose is a good purpose. All this was created for a purpose. But what we do is we start down this path that Paul is talking about when he says this. He says at the very beginning, they're going to suppress the truth because they just want to keep on sinning. I don't want to know what God says. I'm going to suppress the truth so I can keep on sinning. And what do they do? The very first thing they do is they say, well, we can't have a good God. We've got to make one in our own image. You know, we, we need our own God. And so we put somebody else ahead of God. Our government, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our wife, our husband, our kids. Whatever we think we need to put there, then we, and we work for them. And we try to please them. What we're not trying to do anymore is care about what God says. And whenever that happens, God tries to pull you back and eventually he says, you know what? Okay. Have it your way. You don't think this is good? Okay. We'll see how, we'll see how perverse, per- perversity and shame feels. And he lets you go. And, and, and as somebody who's been let go and has gone down the path and, and took a very long time to come back... I can tell you I would love to go back and live my life without it. If there's one thing that I would take away in my world, it's that. It's the memory of that. God's forgiven me, but my memory stays clear. God throws it from east as far as the east is from the west, drops it in the sea of forgetfulness. God doesn't remember it, but I do. I remember every part of the shame. I wish I didn't have it in my life. I wish I didn't have it in my memory. I wish I could have lived my whole life the way Adam and Eve were supposed to live their lives, or like Solomon is living with his beloved in the Psalm of Solomon. That's what I want out of my life. But it's very hard to get innocence back. When you lose it, it's gone. But what we do is we simply say, well, I didn't really know. And we come up with these excuses. God, I didn't know. And that's what he's saying. He says, yes, sir. He says, you did too know. He said, and that's why he comes back and he says in in Romans 2, you have no excuse. You knew. You knew the truth. You knew better than they did the truth. You saw it happening. You saw how depraved they were. And you went down that path anyway. That path always leads to depravity. Where did you think you were going to go? It's like you get on a road and you drive down to Soudersville and you say, how did I end up here? Well, the road leads to Soudersville. Why are you on that road if you don't want to go to Soudersville? Not that Soudersville is a bad place, but if you do not want to go there, go on a different road. And that's what what the Bible is saying. It says, look, you know where that road leads. I'm telling you where that road leads. You want to do it? Go ahead. Put your boyfriend first in your life. Put your girlfriend first in your life. Put your man, put your woman, put whatever you want first in your life instead of God. See where that leads you. It always leads to the same place. Nothing changes. It always leads to the same place. And you end up with shame and condemnation. In the Bible, um, he comes back in Galatians and he says this Do not be deceived. God isn't mocked. You will, whatever a man sows, that he also reaps. Real simple. You know, if you, if you plant tomato seeds, you're going to grow tomatoes, you're not going to get strawberries. You're not going to get tomatoes either without a lot of work, but you're not going to get strawberries for sure. If you're going to plant the strawberry seeds, then you'll get strawberries. This is whatever you, whatever you reap, you sow. What do you think? It's real simple. He who sows flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. That's what flesh does. And he who sows the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. What do you choose? It's very simple. God isn't mocked. You're not fooling him. A clever alibi will never conceal a deceitful heart. And yet we will sit there and we will judge others. he says, when you judge others for what they're doing, you're condemning yourself because you're doing the same things. You're just not down that far on the road yet. You're both on the same road, just they're further ahead than you. And you know better than this. Jesus puts it this way. He says, it is in the spirit who gives life and the flesh gives nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are the spirit and our life. But there are some of you who don't believe this. It is real simple, Jesus says. The words I'm giving you are life. Plant those and you'll grow life. If you don't, you're going to sow corruption. The choice is yours. You can either come to God and say, yep, I'm going to do what you want, or you can have God say to you, go ahead, have it your way. See how that turns out for you. Would you all please pray with me?